Well, happy Resurrection Weekend to all of you. Uh, I know everyone calls it Easter these days, but Easter's for people who uh, uh, like chocolate bunnies and hunt uh, Easter eggs and so forth. We're here to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. He is risen. risen Absolutely. So happy Resurrection Weekend to all of you joining us online. Those of you here at Central Campus, along with those of you who are meeting at one of our other campuses in Airdrie, Bridgeland, Bearspaw, and South Calgary. You know, something that has puzzled me down through the years is how two people can face the same crisis and yet respond to that crisis in polar opposite ways. For example, you have two people facing a serious illness. One is at peace and full of hope. The other is angry, filled with fear. Or you have two people facing financial ruin. One is devastated and unable to move on. The other puts the past behind and sets their sights on new opportunities. Now, there are many reasons why people respond differently to hardship and to crisis. But as I've reflected on this, I'm convinced the most fundamental reason is is that one person has hope and the other person does not. The truth is we all need hope. Our hearts cannot live without hope. The thing that gives us the capacity to keep on keeping on is hope. Hope is for the soul what breathing is for the body. And the reason so many people are living frustrated and despairing lives these days is because they live without true hope. Now when I speak of hope, I'm not talking about a hyped up humanistic rose-colored you can do it kind of hope that's based on the power of positive thinking and human effort. No, I'm talking about a true hope. I'm talking about a hope that is rooted in God. A hope that has an eternal perspective of life, that sustains you through the hard times of life, that deals with your regret and your shame, and that gives you the power to deal with the disappointments in life. Now, true hope that the Bible talks about is tied to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The empty tomb is the basis for true hope because it tells us that we serve a living God, a living God, friends, who can be trusted. In John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus made this very bold claim. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Jesus says, if you believe in him and if you surrender your life to him, you will live forever with him in glory even if you die in this life. Now think about a pastor that you respect. If you can't think of one, think of anyone that you respect, all right? Now, what would happen if this pastor or this person that you highly respect suddenly made a claim like this passage that I just quoted? A claim like Jesus made. 
about rising from the dead, about being the resurrection and the life, about being the only way to heaven. Now, undoubtedly, you'd quickly erase them from your most admired list. You'd quickly remove them from your contact list. But what if this person died, was buried, and then rose again, just as he said he would? That'd be a game changer, wouldn't it? That would have revolutionary implications, not only for your life, but your relationship with this person. You'd quickly put them back on your contact list. So let me give you two of the many life-changing implications of Christ's resurrection. First of all, because Jesus lives, we can trust him to be who he claimed to be. He claimed to be God. He said, I and the Father are one, which means we can trust his teaching. Even though we may not understand it all, we can trust his teachings. And we can also trust his promises that we find in the scriptures. It means we can trust him to forgive us of our sins and the regrets of our past, as he said he would, if we would confess our sins to him. We can trust him to empower us to live victoriously in the present and to take us to be with him in heaven when we die. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, will not see eternal life. For God's wrath remains on him. You see, this is the hope that we possess because Jesus lives. Now, a second implication is this. Because Christ lives, our lives have purpose and meaning. If evolutionists are correct in asserting that there is no God and that we are nothing more than a chance collection of prebiotic soup, then we have no God-ordained meaning or purpose in life. We have no hope beyond the grave. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then we will not be raised from the dead, which means this life is all that there is. 1 Corinthians 15, 32, Paul says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. In other words, if this life is all there is, then why be concerned for anyone but me and my happiness? Because this is as good as it's going to get. This is it. I may as well party, satisfy all of my desires, even if it hurts people around me. And how narrow and how selfish that can be. And we see it lived out daily in our me-centered world, don't we? Yet here's the thing, if we believe that this is all there is, and all there is isn't enough to make us happy and fulfilled, well, we're going to be miserable. Because we're going to feel cheated, we're going to feel bitter and unsatisfied in life. I mean, let's face it, the longer you live, the more you realize that your body is slowly wearing out. It really is, trust me. Even you young bucks, you're getting older every day. 
pretty soon you're going to look like me. <laughs> Sooner or later, we realize that pleasures don't last. They are for about a moment. Everything and everyone that you trust in to give you meaning, fulfillment, and satisfaction in life will be left behind. 1 Corinthians 15, 19 puts it this way. If our hope is only in this life, we of all people are to be pitied. We're to be pitied because we've placed all our hope in earthly gods that are temporary and ultimately will betray us. However, the Bible says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Amen? Amen. And that changes everything, folks. Because he lives, he, not me, not you, but he is the center of the universe. And I find my purpose and my meaning and direction in life from him. Because Jesus lives, I am not a chance collection of prebiotic soup. No, I'm a child of the king. I am a special creation of mighty God, and so are you. A God who loves me, who, who wants to guide me and empower me to live this life to the full and to change the world, at least my little world, through me. And folks, if you will stop and reflect on that, you will begin to understand how the resurrection of Jesus Christ brings true hope to our lives and changes everything. My question is, do you have that kind of hope? What is your hope really based on? I invite you to open your Bibles or your Bible app to Luke chapter 23. And just follow along as I tell the story of two criminals and their encounter with Christ. In this chapter, we read about the crucifixion of Jesus. And beginning verse 33, we're introduced to two men who have no hope. It's a gruesome scene. Three men are hanging on three crosses. Jesus is hanging on the center cross, paying for crimes that he never committed. The two men on either side of Jesus are criminals, and they know that they are guilty. And despite the horrendous pain that they are experiencing, we read they joined in with the crowd and the Roman soldiers, jeering and mocking Jesus. Now, even, they, even though they both faced the same circumstances, and even though they had the same experience of Jesus, one of them died with hope. And the other one died despairing without hope. Because of their decision concerning Christ, one of them would spend eternity with Jesus in paradise or in heaven. The other would be separated from God and Christ for all of eternity. The first criminal isn't sorry for his crimes or his sin. He's just mad that he got caught. He's full of pride. He isn't interested in knowing God. He's not interested in knowing who God is. 
He's only interested in a God who will give him what he wants. And that's why in verse 39 he says, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and save us. He wants to be saved. Not from his sins or his regrets. No, he wants to be saved from his unfortunate circumstances. He'll acknowledge anybody as king who will get him off the cross, who will serve his purposes. Now sadly, that's the way many people relate to God in our day. They say they believe in God, but the real God that they worship is the good life, to be wealthy, to be healthy and happy. They keep God that they say they believe in, they keep him at a safe, comfortable distance for emergencies. John Piper says, to them, God is like a carjack. You keep a carjack out of sight until you have a need for it, until you have a flat tire. Then you get the carjack out of the trunk and you use it to get back on the road. In the, way, in the same way, some people keep God at an arm's length and out of sight until they face a crisis of some sort. And then they turn to him for help. Jesus, if you're God, then get me down off this cross. Jesus, if you're a good God, then save my marriage. Or get me out of this financial mess that I'm in, or this lousy job, or heal this sickness. And if the issue is resolved, then like a tire jack, God is so often put back in the trunk of our lives where he is essentially ignored until the next crisis. And friends, make no mistake. God knows the state of our hearts. He knows my heart. He knows your heart. And if you're signing up on Jesus' team thinking he's your golden ticket to the good life and also to heaven, and you have no real intention of following him as your Lord and as your king, then like the unrepentant criminal here, you will receive from Jesus precisely nothing. Jesus has no interest in being a backup plan or a little part of our already overcrowded life. No, he wants to be the center of our lives. He wants to be our Lord and King. Why? Because he is Lord and King. And because as our creator, he knows that we will be living despairing, frustrated, and restless lives until we find our true rest in him. The unrepentant criminal's heart was completely self-centered and oblivious to God. And as a result, he not only died without Jesus, the true God, but also without hope. Now, folks, it doesn't have to be this way. I say that because it didn't turn out this way for the other criminal, the repentant criminal. 
The second criminal died with hope, a hope of being with Jesus for all of eternity. He died with a peace that passes all human understanding. So how did that come to be? How did the second criminal find hope in Jesus? Well, first of all, he began to think about where he stood with God. A lot of times we don't stop to think about where we stand with God. Based on the chronology of the day, Jesus and the two criminals, they were nailed to the cross around 9 a.m. on a Friday morning. And somewhere between 9 a.m. and noon, while others were cursing and mocking Jesus, the one criminal becomes quiet. Possibly for the first time in his life, he begins to think about God, and he begins to think about eternal matters. He's never felt more deeply alone, empty, and afraid. And he has no answers to all the big questions of life which he's avoided all of his life. But here he is. He's now facing these eternal questions. He has no, no idea if there is a God, what life is all about, or where he will be moments after he dies. He's given no thought to these questions. And then he looks over at Jesus. He hears the insults from the crowd, the Roman soldiers, religious leaders, and yet he's amazed. There is no anger in Jesus' eyes toward them only tears. Instead of railing back at them, the only thing he hears Jesus saying is, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. He sees the sign above Jesus' head, King of the Jews. And he begins to wonder, could it be? Could all the things that he heard about Jesus over the last months and years that he had totally dismissed as totally, total nonsense, could all the good things that Jesus said and did, the miracles that he performed, could it be true? And probably for the first time in his life, he begins to humble himself, to give himself permission to be open to the possibility of Jesus actually being God. And suddenly his thoughts are interrupted by the insults of the other criminal hurled at Jesus. And even though his energy is sapped and his body feels like it's going to explode, the repentant criminal feels impelled to challenge his partner in crime. In verse 40, he says, don't you fear God? Don't you realize the seriousness of the situation we're in and that in a few hours we're going to be facing God? You know, one of the reasons people treat God so casually these days is because they believe they've got lots of time to get serious with God. I'm reminded of the story that Jesus told in Luke chapter 12. It's a story of the wealthy farmer who lived his life like it would never end, who invested most of his time and his en energy into the temporary things of life and ignored God and the eternal things of God. Late one night as he was poring over his plans to yet again 
expand his booming business, death came knocking. And he died suddenly without knowing God. And even though at his funeral service, very important people in the community said some very nice things about him, he was a good man, he was a model citizen, he was a successful entrepreneur, Jesus called him a fool. Because for all of this man's talents and abilities and his vision, he forgot to factor in the one and only certainty in life. And that is somewhere along the way, he would die. In the words of one Bible commentator, he had staked the efforts of his life on power, fame, and possessions on accumulating the things and the pleasures of this world, and he had not given much thought to God or preparing to meet God. He was too concerned about what other people thought of him and not concerned enough about what God thought of him. And as God examined the state of his heart, he examined his priorities and his passions and the fruit of his life, the only word he could use to summarize this man's life was fool. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm sure he was a religious man. I'm sure he believed in God. However, you may believe that God exists, but if you live as though God doesn't exist. God says you're a fool because you really don't know him and you're really not living for him. You're living for yourself, for your own agenda. Just face it. And you see, this is one of the great differences between these two criminals. The one stopped and began to think about where he stood with God. And the other did not. My question to you is, have you stopped long enough to give serious thought to where you stand with God? What are you really, or who is it that you're really worshiping and living for in this life? Where will you be moments after you die? Furthermore, the second criminal found hope in Jesus because he confessed his sin to God. In verse 40, he said to the other criminal, Don't you fear God? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Now, it's obvious from these words that the repentant criminal has had a change of heart. He no longer mocks Jesus, but clearly defends him, stating that Jesus has done nothing wrong. He's humbled himself before God and he admits that he's done wrong and he deserves to be punished for his crimes. He recognizes his need for forgiveness and his need for a savior. And so the question is, do you recognize your need for forgiveness and for God to save you by his grace. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, 
He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And then thirdly, the repentant thief found hope in Jesus because he placed his trust in Jesus. He turns to Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And even though pain is pulsating through every fiber of his body, Jesus turns to this criminal and he performs the greatest miracle of the cross. A miracle greater than the darkness that came over the land for three hours from noon till three o'clock that day. Greater than a miracle of the temple curtain being torn from the top to the bottom. Or even greater than the earthquake that violently shook the earth right after Jesus died. Jesus performs the miracle of forgiveness. Responding to the repentant thief saying, I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. You know, folks, there is no other religion that can offer what Jesus offered the repentant criminal that day. And that is because every other religion outside of true biblical Christianity requires a person to earn their way to heaven. And yet I want you to notice here that Jesus extended grace and forgiveness and eternal life to this criminal even though he had never followed an eightfold path or five pillars of faith or been baptized or received communion or gone on a mission trip or done a long list of good deeds to offset his sins. All that he had on his spiritual resume was a list of crimes and sins and regrets. However, he did have the most important thing. He had a humble, surrendered heart, which I remind you is what matters most to our God. Our God looks first and foremost at the state of our heart. The criminal essentially said to Jesus, I have nothing to offer you. All I can offer you is my need. And I ask that you would do the rest, Lord. That you would pay the whole price for my sins and that you would save me because I've got nothing to offer to atone for my sins and regrets. You see, the repentant thief was affirming the one thing, the most important truth that separates Christianity from every other religion in the world, the doctrine of amazing grace. Outrageous grace, I might add. Salvation is offered in whole to sinners who don't deserve it. The Bible puts it this way in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, this not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And what that passage is saying is good works, as important as they are, don't get you to heaven. 
You can't earn your way to heaven. You can't buy your way to heaven. Good works is not what people do to get to heaven. No, it is what people do who already are on their way to heaven because they've placed their faith in Jesus. Make no mistake, folks. Baptism is important. Communion's important. Generosity is important. Being part of and engaged in the mission and the ministry of the church of Jesus Christ is important because after all, the church was Jesus' idea. Let's not forget that. And let's also not forget that Jesus is building his church today. It's him who's doing it. But good works, rituals, ceremonies, they don't save you. What saves you is a sincere faith in Jesus Christ. This is fundamentally why Jesus could say this to the, to the criminal who had absolutely nothing to offer to Jesus except a humble, contrite heart pleading for mercy. Jesus said to him, I tell you the truth. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. And folks, Jesus will do the same for you and for me. John 1.12 says, Yet to all who received him, his free gift of grace, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Because he lives, we have total confidence that Jesus is the way to heaven and to a full life here on earth. I remind you, that the tomb that held Jesus is empty. The tomb of every other religious leader is still occupied, but not so my Jesus. He is alive today because there was indeed a resurrection. And the power that raised him from the dead is available to you and me. If you're discouraged today, If you're feeling defeated today, most likely it's because you're living on the wrong side of the resurrection. You are trying to make sense of your life and your circumstances without the living Christ. You're you're trying to fix things in your own strength. You're still fixated on Good Friday and the crucified Christ rather than Resurrection Sunday and the resurrected Christ. The empty tomb proclaims that no situation is hopeless because Jesus lives. We serve a living God. We serve a living Savior. And that changes everything for life and for eternity because it means that Jesus is part of every equation. And if he is part of every equation, we have reason. Oh, do we have reason to hope. Because with Jesus, all things are possible. Because Jesus lives, he can resurrect your soul from sin and death to life by his grace. Because Jesus lives, he can mend your broken heart. He can transform your entire life from the inside out. He can heal your broken body and your sick body. He can break the chains of your addictions. He can resurrect 
your dying marriage or family. He can dispel the clouds of despair, bring hope to your hopelessness, bring joy to your joylessness, and peace to your restlessness. But make no mistake, if you want that hope, you have to make up your mind about Jesus. What will you do with Jesus and his claims? As I see it, you have four options concerning Christ. Option one is you can reject him. You can conclude he was a good man, he did some good teaching, but nothing more. Or you can write him off as a fake, a liar, and a lunatic. Option two is you can ignore him. You can reject him or you can ignore him. You can say, well, I'll consider following him one day, but not today. I've just got too much living to do yet. I've got too much fun to experience yet. Make no mistake, to ignore Jesus is fundamentally to reject Jesus. To not make a decision for him is to make a decision about him. A third option is to see Jesus as a backup plan. You can keep him at a safe, comfortable distance, far enough away so as not to mess with your life, and yet close enough to get you out of a jam when needed. And yet, as I already said, Jesus will not be your backup plan. As I said earlier, if your interest in Jesus is primarily for what he can do for you, you're going to receive from him precisely nothing. The only other option is to embrace him as your Savior, Lord, and King, as he claimed to be, and worship him with all of your heart, soul, and mind. The truth is, there is no middle road with Jesus. He doesn't give us a choice. If we want all that Jesus has for us, then we need to give him all of us. We need to be all in, totally surrendered to him as Lord and Savior. And when we do, we're going to experience all that he has for us. And so I ask you again, where do you really stand with Jesus? Have you made a decision about him? Or are you thinking you're going to settle this another time? I'll close with this. Many years ago, I got a call from a woman asking if I might come to visit her husband who was dying. She grew up in a Christian home. And she wasn't sure whether her 40-something husband, where he was at spiritually, and hoped I might be able to introduce him to Jesus before he passed. When I got to their home, I did my best in the most simplest of terms to explain the truth and the good news of Jesus to her husband. But his illness was so advanced, his medication so strong, that he drifted in and out of consciousness unable to understand or to respond. After some time, his wife turned to me and with tears in her eyes said something that I will never forget. She said, I think we waited too long to talk about this.
It was a devastating moment, not only for her, but for me. A little later, when I left their home, I sat for some time in my car in tears, totally heartbroken. As I thought about this husband and this father, and all the people in our city and around the world who put off seeking to know God and becoming a friend of God, who, because of pride, they hang on their independence because they're afraid of being seen as too religious or fanatical by their friends or because they want to worship their earthly counterfeit gods that will betray them one day, these gods of position and power and possessions and pleasure. They want to hang on to these things as long as possible before they get serious about God. Because like this couple, they have this false idea that they've got lots of time to make their peace with God. You know, friends, 2 Corinthians 6 challenges those who, who think they've got lots of time with this. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. In whom are you trusting, not only to take you to heaven, but to help you, to guide you, and to empower you to live this life to the fullest? Would you please close your eyes and bow your heads? This is a sacred moment, because I believe that you're not here by accident, or you're not hearing me by accident. I believe God's trying to get your attention I believe he's trying to say to you, you matter to me. I have been pursuing you all your life. Trying to get your attention. If you don't know where you stand with Jesus, if you're not sure where you'd be moments after you, you die. You can be sure. You can have that peace within, even as this repentant criminal was when he asked Jesus to remember him. I invite you to pray this prayer along with me right now. You can whisper this prayer. You can just quietly say it in your spirit because God knows your thoughts. He knows the state of your heart. And there's nothing really magical in these words, but I hope that as I just pray them, that it will help you to express what's on your heart. Because remember, God looks at your heart. He's concerned about what's going on there. So pray along with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your amazing love and grace, for dying for me and paying the penalty for my sin. Thank you for pursuing me all my life and for seeking to get my attention. Please forgive me for my sins. I so want to put the past behind and start following you faithfully from this moment forward. I ask, Lord, that you would come into my life and you would make me a new person as you promised that you would. I'm putting my total trust in you for forgiveness. And I'm committing myself to following you as Lord and to listening to your voice going forward. Fill me with yourself. 
Live your life of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control through me, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you sincerely prayed that prayer, the promise that Jesus made to that criminal that day applies to you as well. As of now, in the spiritual realm, you are a spiritual child of our Lord. You are his friend, and you are heaven-bound. The old is gone, the new has come. And as you seek him and follow him with all of your heart, you will know his purpose for your life. You will experience his joy and his love and his peace in a way you never have. Now, then just a word to Christians here. Where is it that you really stand with Jesus? I'm not asking whether you prayed a prayer somewhere in your past, like the one that I just prayed. I'm not asking if you, if you believe in Jesus, because the Bible tells us that even the demons believe in Jesus. To believe in someone according to the Bible is to put your life completely into the hands of the one you say you believe in. And so as you look at your passions, as you look at your life priorities, as you look at your pursuits, as you look at your purchases, as you look at your pleasures, your pride, your generosity, the health of your relationship with other people, can you honestly say that Jesus is your Lord and King that you're following with all of your heart, soul, and mind? Or would you have to say you're keeping him at a safe, comfortable place? Are you worshiping him? Or is it something else that you're really worshiping? I invite you to pray this prayer along with me right now. Father, thank you for opening my eyes to my proud, rebellious heart and to areas in my life that are not pleasing to you. Forgive me for ignoring you and not including you in my day, for lusting after the temporary rather than the eternal, for seeking the applause of others rather than your smile alone. I surrender my life to you anew, Lord, and I ask that you would fill me completely with the Holy Spirit that you would live your life through me and you would use me, Lord, to make a difference in the lives of others. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Now in the seat back in front of you is a response card that says, Jesus gives me hope for. In light of what you sense Jesus saying to you through this service, take a pen Complete the card right now. Jesus gives me hope for what? In a moment, we're going to respond with a worship song about our true and our living hope, which of course is Jesus. And as we sing this song, there will be a moment when our worship leaders will call on us to hold high our response card as a declaration of the difference Jesus makes in our lives and how he gives us hope. So just take a moment right now and say, Lord, what are you saying to me?
and then just complete this card. God bless you as you do.